You see that thing in white? Yeah, it's coming toward us. Hello, Major. This may sound crazy, but there's something strange going on with Caper 1. Lieutenant, sir, I think we should get out of here. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 82, and I'm your host, Jeff Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films that are, well, out of my comfort zone, and for that I depend on you, the listener. So next time you see a film that causes you to scratch your head and say, what was that about? Keep me in mind. I'll help you figure it out. I'll try anyway. Anyway, I'll have information on how you can reach me at the end of today's show. On this show, I'm going to talk about the 1971 film The Andromeda Strain, directed by Robert Weiss, based on the novel by Michael Crichton. Now, while I have seen this film before, I haven't seen it for over 30 years, maybe even 40, so uh, it's almost like I'm seeing it for the first time. Now, I used to have this job watching movies. I did it all night long, from midnight to 8 in the morning. So all I did was watch movies. See, I worked for a company back in the early days of home video. This company produced VHS and beta cassettes for home viewing. Kids, ask your parents about VHS and beta. Anyway, it was a good time to have this job because home video was just beginning. So not only were we doing a lot of new films, but a lot of older films were being released to home video for the first time. And I was in quality control. And I would get a batch of like 500 tapes that were all recorded at the same time. Now my little station there, well, I had six tape decks and six monitors. So the middle monitor, I would watch the movie from beginning to end, while on the other five, I would just check to make sure each cassette contained the complete movie. One film I remember watching was the subject of today's show, The Andromeda Strain. But that was a long time ago when I didn't remember a lot about it. And then I was asked to watch it by Jeff Streba, a longtime listener. And I think others in the past have recommended it as well. And since I didn't remember a lot about it, I thought, why not? I did remember the old drunk, the baby, bits about the beginning, and, well, the end. So what is the Andromeda strain? The film opens with white letters on black that tell us, this film concerns the four-day history of a major scientific crisis. We received the generous help of many people attached to Project Scoop at Vandenberg Air Force Base and the Wildfire Laboratory at Flat Rock, Nevada. They encourage us to tell the story accurately and in detail. The documents presented here are soon to be made public. They do not in any way jeopardize the national security. And I'll talk about that a bit later. So after the credit sequence... The film opens with some military men looking through binoculars at a small town in a mountainous area called Piedmont, New Mexico. Yes, I'm reading over. Uh, We're about to enter the town of Piedmont and recover the satellite. Very good, Caper One. Leave your radio open. Roger. 
It's night and there are buzzards flying around. The town is still. Like, well, everybody might be dead. Vandal Decker to Caper 1. What's happened? We see bodies. Lots of them. Are you certain, Caper 1? Damn it, Conroe. Of course we're certain. The military is there to retrieve a satellite. And then things go wrong, very wrong. After a jet flyby, it is learned that everybody in the town is dead. A team is quickly put together to figure things out. This is a recording. State your name and your message and hang up. Major Arthur Manchek, Scoop Mission Control A-12. I recommend calling a wildfire alert. We have evidence here on film of a natural death caused by Scoop 7 returning to Earth. Time check. 0147 inclusive. It consists of Dr. Jeremy Stone, who would be the team leader, Dr. Mark Hall, a surgeon, Dr. Charles Dutton, and Dr. Ruth Levette, who are both research scientists. Some go willing and others, well, they take some convincing. No. Uh-uh. Get someone else. Dr. Levitt, I told you there's a fire. My experiment's at the critical stage. I've been working around the clock. I can't just leave now. Now, Dr. Stone and Dr. Hall are sent to Piedmont to check things out. Wearing hazmat suits, they find that pork chops are selling for 95 cents a pound. Actually, I just happened to notice that was on a butcher shop window. Sorry. They do find the satellite, along with the fact that everybody in the town is dead, except a baby and an old man. I wouldn't believe you could commit suicide that way. Most of them died instantly, but a few had time to go quietly nuts. Let's find that damn satellite. It is also learned that the blood of the dead has turned to powder, clotted. Ah, that's a clue. But the big question is, what does this crying baby and the crazed old man have in common that let them survive while all the others died. So the four experts go to a top-secret Nevada underground facility codenamed Wildfire. Dr. Mark Hall learns why he was chosen. It was the odd man hypothesis. Look, I'm the new boy here. Why me? Because you're single. Should have done your homework, sport. Page 255, Robbie's odd man hypothesis. Results of testing confirm the Robertson odd man hypothesis that an unmarried male should carry out command decisions involving thermonuclear destruct contexts. Let me take a look at that. Now, the facility is armed with a nuclear bomb set to detonate if things should go wrong. The odd man is the only one who can stop it. Hey, I wonder if that'll come into play. Now, wildfire has deeper and deeper levels, five of them. And as they go down, level by level, they get cleaner and cleaner. And let me tell you, it'll take a lot of movie time before they get to the lab in the basement. It'll take us 16 hours to descend through the programmed decontamination procedures on the first four levels to level five with the main lab site. So that's the basic plot. Our four medical people are trying to figure out what the satellite brought back to Earth and killed all those people, and why the baby and the old man, who drink something called Squeeze, survived. And let's just hope there isn't a chance of contamination that might lead to the nuclear bomb being set to go off. There are now 55 seconds to self-destruct. <sighs> now, the film was based on a book by Michael Crichton, who lived from 1942 to 2008. This was his fifth novel, but the first under his own name. 
He originally wrote under the pen name John Lang because he planned on being a doctor and didn't want his patients to worry that he would use them for his plots. Some of his other novels include The Terminal Man from 72, The Great Train Robbery from 75, Congo from 80, Jurassic Park from 1990, Rising Sun from 92, Disclosure from 94, The Lost World from 95, and Timeline from 1999. His 1969 novel, The Andromeda Strain, was inspired by the novel The Ipirus File by Len Dayton. Crichton said that he was terrifically impressed by the book. A lot of Andromeda is traceable to Ipirus in terms of trying to create an imaginary world using recognizable techniques and real people. It took him about three years to write the book. Now, Crichton also wanted to write the screenplay for the film, but director Robert Weiss didn't like the idea of a book's author working on the film. He said, I very seldom want the screenplay done by the original author because so many times you have to make big changes, major changes in screenplay, and the original author is bound into his own concepts of what he wrote. So I think it's always much better to get another screenwriter to do the screenplay rather than the original author. Now, director Robert Weiss had a long career. He lived from 1914 to 2005. He started at RKO in the 1930s. He worked with Orson Welles on Citizen Kane in 1941 as an editor, and he directed the reshoots of Welles' Magnificent Ambersons in 42. He wanted to have a fantastic career with films like The Body Stature from 45, Born to Kill from 47, The Day the Earth Stood Still from 51, This Could Be the Night from 57, Run Silent, Run Deep from 58, I Want to Live also from 58, West Side Story from 1961, The Haunting from 63, The Sound of Music from 65, The Sand Pebbles from 66, and Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979. And that's just a few of the films he directed. He also won the Academy Award for Best Picture and Director for the films West Side Story and The Sound of Music, and was nominated for Best Picture for The Sand Pebbles and Best Director for I Want to Live. Weiss made the decision early on to avoid any big stars. Instead, he chose actors that have been around for a while, quality actors, who were less well-known. He thought it would make the film much more believable. So starring in the film was Canadian actor Arthur Hill, who lived from 1922 to 2006. We don't want anything to contaminate a possible organism. That would make it twice as hard to isolate and characterize. He was in such films as The Ugly American from 63, Harper from 66, Petulia from 68, The Chairman from 69, The Killer Elite from 75, Future World from 76, A Bridge Too Far from 77, and he was the narrator of Something Wicked This Way Comes from 1983. He also did a lot of TV work, including the show Owen Marshall's Counselor at Law, in which he played the title character. David Wayne plays Charles Dutton. Jeremy, on this matter of extermination, we should go slowly. Without ever realizing it, we might destroy a highly intelligent form of life. Wayne was on this earth from 1914 to 1995. Now I have a quick personal story about Mr. Wayne. I have fond memories of my mother and I, when I was a young boy, watching mystery programs on TV. We always watched the NBC mystery movie, which featured shows like Columbo, McLeod, McMillan and Wife, and others. 
Another show we watched was Ellery Queen, starring the wonderful Jim Hutton as the title character. David Wayne played Inspector Richard Queen, Ellery's father. For years after, when I saw David Wayne, I could only think of him from that mystery show. But as it turned out, Wayne had a long career. When I really got into older films, I began seeing him all the time. He was in four films with Marilyn Monroe, Young As You Feel from 51, We're Not Married from 52, O. Henry's Full House also from 52, and How to Marry a Millionaire from 1953. He was also in films like Portrait of Jeannie from 48, Adam's Rib from 49, The Three Faces of Eve from 57, and The Apple Dumpling Gang from 1975. David is always a treat to watch. Jimmy Olsen, or James Olsen, plays Dr. Mark Hall. The important thing is that something can slow it down. I think it's some kind of blood disorder. If the old soldier missed his insulin treatment, he'd go into acidosis, the same as Jackson and Sterner. He was born in 1930, and as of this recording, is still around today at 91 years old. I know Olsen has been around for a long time, but I only know him from the film... Moon Zero Two from 1969, and that's because it was on Mystery Science Theater 3000. I think he's mostly known for his television work. He's one of those actors who pops up all the time in almost every series between 1956 and 1990. In both this and Moon Zero Two, he plays the handsome smartass, always ready for a quip. And for me, well, it just doesn't work. This is the answering service supervisor... We wish you would adopt a more serious attitude, Dr. Hall. Sorry, her voice is quite luscious. Well, the voice belongs to Miss Gladys Stevens, who is 63 years old. She lives in Omaha and makes her living taping messages for voice reminder systems. Much obliged. I think I'm thinking more of him in Moon Zero Two, but this is well. I don't think he's right for that kind of a part, though I could be wrong. Dr. Ruth Levitt is played by Kate Reed. Results of testing confirm the Robertson odd man hypothesis that an unmarried male should carry out command decisions involving thermonuclear destruct contact. Apparently, in the book Andromeda Strain, the part is a man but was changed for the film. I think it was a good change. A female was definitely necessary. She was born Daphne Catherine Reed in 1930 and lived in 1993. Like all the other actors in this film, she had a very long career. And, according to Wikipedia, she played more than 1,000 roles, most notably on stage in Death of a Salesman, in the 1980 film Atlantic City, and episodes of the TV show Dallas. She was described by Inspiring Woman, a celebration of her story, as generally regarded as the finest actress ever developed in Canada. Her films include This Property is Condemned from 66, Death Ship from 1980, and Atlantic City also from 1980. I think she's much more known for her stage work, but she's wonderful in this film. Maybe the best part of it, although they make her character into quite a grump, always complaining about something. And sometimes I find it gets a little old. I'd like to see her smile more often. The last actor I'm going to talk about is the beautiful Paula Kelly as the wildfire nurse Karen Anson. If you like Dr. Hall, my name's Karen Anson. I know Kelly from the first season of the sitcom Night Court. She's only been in a handful of films, but has done a lot of TV work. 
There's Soylent Green from 73, Uptown Saturday Night from 74, and JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling from 86. I would have really liked to have seen more of her in this film. You were lucky. Medcom's got one of the best minds here. It's a medical data analyzer that can diagnose as well as prescribe. There's so much of the experts spouting science constantly about this and that. It would have been nice to have more of a regular person's point of view. And then there's that weird scene in which the old man grabs her butt. It was probably there for a bit of levity. Like we're supposed to think, oh, isn't that cute? But it comes off as very creepy. That might be because I'm watching this film in 2023. Other actors in this film are George Mitchell as the old man, Jackson. You're not human. Everybody's dead. What happened? Ramon Bieri as Major Arthur Manchek. And Michael Crichton himself makes a cameo appearance in the surgery room near the beginning. Okay, now it's time to talk about what I thought of the film. And I'm going to be honest with you here. Probably half this movie, for the most part, was excruciatingly boring. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, the way I see it, the plot, the main plot, takes place in the underground lab. The idea is to figure out the mystery. But it takes so long to get there. I mean, you're talking more than a half hour before we reach the bunker. And I know during that time we learn a little bit about the satellite and the characters, but I believe you could have wrapped that up a lot quicker, like in 15 minutes. And then there's over 20 minutes of the four of them traveling down to level 5. We don't want anything to contaminate a possible organism. That would make it twice as hard to isolate and characterize. And there's way too much detail as we witness each stage of the cleansing procedure. Yeah, there's bits of exposition in between, but still, all of that wasn't necessary to the plot. We don't need to know how they got clean. It's almost like the filmmakers are saying, look, we figured all this out. Aren't we clever? I would have been happy with them getting off on the fifth level and saying, oh, getting sterilized. What an ordeal. But we're clean now. I'm assuming that in the book, which I'd never read, that maybe it works there. And then there's that strange scene right when they get to Wildfire. I think it might be there for comic relief or something, but it didn't really work for me. When they first arrived, Dr. Stone asks if there's any messages for him because he's waiting for one. He's told no by the man behind the desk, but he asks, are you sure? Because he's waiting for an important message. And suddenly the man on duty gets all sarcastic. He stands up and says, Dr. Stone, sir, I have one thing to do. Just one. Everything else is fully automatic, computerized, and self-regulated. I I listen for little bell in here. Ding-a-ling. That means a message coming in is for the wildfire team. Precisely. An MCM communication. I'm expecting one. Yes, sir. Top priority. Ding-a-ling. I push a button, and all five level control centers are notified at the same time you are. The bell hasn't rung, sir. Thanks for the tour, Sergeant. And that could have been easily wrapped up by him just saying, Sir, this is my only job. When I get a message for you, you'll be the first one to know about it. I didn't get that scene at all, and I didn't find it very amusing. Once the first hour of the film is over, things pick up and it does get interesting, although a little dry. I'm not saying it needs like a love story or anything as stupid as that, but it could have used something else, but I'm not sure what. 
In fact, when we discover that Dr. Ruth Levitt has a problem with Dr. Mark Hall... Oh, uh, you two know each other, don't you? By reputation only. Ah, uh, yes. Up to now, we've had to worship from afar. Be good, Ruth. I thought it was going to go somewhere with some sort of a subplot. Maybe they were one-time lovers, or maybe he wrote a paper criticizing her work or something. But there's nothing. That whole bit drops, and we never find out why she has a problem with him. Now, director Weiss wanted to give this film a documentary feel. That's probably why the film tries to trick us into thinking it's a true story right from the start. And during the film, we're often treated to multiple angles on the screen at the same time in rectangular boxes. In some ways, it does work. I mean, you're seeing different bits of action that are happening at the same time. I'm not sure if I like that effect or not. I can't make up my mind. But on the plus side, I did like how they worked in a little backstory, in these quick little flashbacks. Although sometimes they came off a little silly. Like this one that could have been from an old Doctor Who episode. Fools. They refuse to believe life exists in meteorites. I showed them at the astrophysics conference what I just showed you. But no. Even with a microscope, they're blind. What do I have to do? Hit them over the head? Or why are the other scientists laughing like schoolchildren when Dr. Dutton tells them there could be microscopic life out there in the galaxy? <laughs> I'm glad you're amused, gentlemen, but it might just turn out to be true. During this symposium, we'll discuss the possibility that intelligent life on a distant planet may be no larger than a flea. <laughs> Perhaps no larger than a bacterium. And one more bit of warning here. You're going to hear a lot of science. I mean a lot of science. Now, I do like to be positive, and I think I've been way too negative here. So I'll say the end, although predictable in a way, it was fun. And all in all, the opening worked really well, really effective. I think a first-time viewer would really enjoy it. And I do love watching a movie like this that was made before computer graphics, CGI. It's nice to know the helicopter in the sky was actually a real helicopter in the sky. And the special effects. It's fun to think that they were made without the use of computers. As far as the sets go, well, this movie does what so many sci-fi films do, and that's we can't have normal-looking hallways. The hallways in this movie are curved and roundish, almost like they're tunnels, and it makes little sense. From a design, cost, or functionality aspect, it just doesn't work. The reason why most hallways look the way they do is because it's the most efficient way to make a hallway. But, like I said, it does look good. And the halls in each level are painted the color of that level. Like, when they are in the red level, the hallways are painted red. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it was the same tunnel slash hallway used in every scene. When they finished with the red level, they would go do something else while the hallway was painted the color for the next level. And the special effects do look good, especially for 1971, and that's probably because they were done by Douglas Trumbull. Trumbull, of course, worked on such films as 2001 A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kinds, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Blade Runner, so he knows what he's doing. I'm sorry if I seem a little negative about this film. I think if uh, 
I had watched it in 1971 or even watched it today without knowing what was going on, I might have enjoyed it more. But now it's time to find out what others thought of this movie. And for that, we turn to the IMDb user reviews. Hager22 gave it the maximum 10 stars and had this to say. A sci-fi with a capital S. I've always been attracted by science since my early childhood. I remember seeing this movie and being fascinated by the science and technology on display in it. Today, as a MCSEE, I can see that the science in Andromeda Strain is accurate. In fact, it's the most accurate of all sci-fi movies I have seen, and I've seen a great majority of sci-fi cinema. That's one reason I love this movie. But there are other, probably subjective reasons for my adulation of Andromeda Strain. Believable people and believable situations. No last microsecond decision slash action slash occurrence. No over-the-top behavior, just human quirkiness. No one man does it all but teamwork and the birth of ideas and the avoidance of the cliché of only one will survive. So yes, I liked the script a lot. I also thought the actors were really good, and the setting was brilliant. I am not put off by the dated computer technology. The film clearly illustrates the computing capabilities at the beginning of the 70s, and I find something educative and strongly assuring in that. I give it 10 slash 10, and I am sad that nobody produced a sci-fi as scientifically accurate ever since. Lumper13 gave it 7 stars and said, Fine, slow-moving sci-fi drama. There's an echo of 2001 and a foreshadowing of the parallax view in this paranormal sci-fi drama. The movie delights in presenting the tools of science and questioning the direction and authority of those elected or selected to preserve us. The pacing strikes modern audiences as slow, it is, but that's the film's greatest success, suspense fully unfolding at a snail's pace. Some of the dialogue is stilted, and some points are far too belabored. The scene where Dr. Mark Hall, James Olsen, is instructed on the use of the key is a tedious overplaying of the moment. The cast do what they can do with a dialogue that sounds a little trite and predictable in its day and sadly is the main thing that mars an otherwise hypnotic journey into the dangers of modern government and modern science. At the film's core, however, is a lesson that bears repeating lest we forget. Distressed 1218 only gave it four stars. Be prepared for the long haul. Even though this thing movie slower than a glacier, it's still compelling enough to be watchable. Can't put my finger on why. It's nearly 137 minutes long, nothing really happens for most of the running time, except for the last 20 minutes or so. I'm not even sure the payoff is worth sitting through the whole movie. However, I like the look of the movie. It had a kind of Logan's Run vibe going. Being made in 1971, the movie looks dated today. There are things about it that are, are quite amusing from that aspect. There is certainly a quaintness to it anyway if you decide to watch this film. Just be prepared for the long haul. For me, the Andromeda Strain is 4 out of 10. Quickly, don't blame me for the way that sounded. I read it exactly how it was written, and it was written badly. Punctuation and spelling is not distress forte. Ton Moreau 56672 gave it the dreaded one star. He or she said absolute garbage. 
This film is an example of what not to do in filmmaking. It has a disjointed plot that is full of holes and contains real animal abuse. It starts with a phone call of a soldier screaming about being attacked by some white thing, but then the alien being somehow switches to a mysterious infection without a word of explanation. There are more plot ridiculousness, like the way they wear their hazmat suits when dealing with the infection, except when they don't. There are too many flaws to mention. There's animal abuse. The director subjected monkeys and rats to CO2 poisoning until they seized and collapsed. The monkeys were supposedly revived. It's sick to torture animals for a film. I don't know how anyone can give this film a good rating. It isn't worth watching. Now, to Tomaru's point, yes, they did use CO2 to make the monkeys look like they were dying. And they did say that once the animals passed out, they were able to revive them with oxygen. The music was composed by Gil Mel. Gil was an American artist, jazz musician, and film composer who lived from 1931 to 2004. Some of the other films he composed music for was The Ultimate Warrior from 75, Starship Invasions from 77, The Sentinel from 77, and Blood Beach from 1980. He also worked on the TV shows Ironside, Then Came Bronson, Night Gallery, and Kojak the Night Stalker. For this film, he seemed to use a lot of electronic music to create a weird, suspenseful, mystery-type sound. I'll give the filmmakers credit for trying to do something different, because I like different, but I really can't say that you will enjoy watching it. I think this is one of those films that I can see both sides. Some people are going to love it, and some people, well, they'll just hate it. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? A little bit before I go, I watched a YouTube video of a gentleman who compares films to the novels that they are based on. And according to him, the Andromeda Strain is probably the closest that's ever been done in doing the novel accurately as a film. I've only read one Michael Crichton book, I think, in my life, and that was Jurassic Park. And that was only because a friend insisted that I read it after I saw the movie. So I'm not sure about that. I know in 2008, it was made into a miniseries that was executive produced by Ridley and Tony Scott. And apparently... The characters, names, and personalities were radically changed from the novel. So who knows? I'm a bit curious to find out how they extended this into a miniseries, but I don't plan on watching it anytime soon, even if it's available. Now, if you have any thoughts on the Andromeda Strain, or anything connected with the Andromeda Strain, if you're a fan of the book, whatever, feel free to send me an email. 
You can reach me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid, all being one word. In fact, you can email me for any reason. Even just to say, hi, Jeff. Or you can use our Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days, of course. And there's a Twitter page. It's at Twitter underscore days. I do post daily there. Next week, I think I'm going to do a Hitchcock movie. I don't think I've ever done a Hitchcock movie. I'll do his 1959 American spy thriller, North by Northwest. It's probably the most ridiculous and the most fun of all the Hitchcock movies. I know, that's debatable, but whatever. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, wherever you stream this podcast, I'll be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday. Take care. Stay healthy. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multipass. You know this Multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing it.